You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author Coco Picard about her new book, The Healing Circle, which won the Red Hand Press 2020 Women's Prose Award. Ms. Picard is a writer, a cartoonist, and a curator. She has published two graphic novels as well as articles on art criticism, and she's done some comics. She received her MFA from the School of Art Institute and was a bookends fellow at Stony Brook University. Welcome to the show, Coco. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, you know, let me start off with a question that some of our listeners always, I think, ask, especially if they're trying to write. What are your writing habits? Do you write at a certain time of day, or do you have a favorite location where you write? Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I mean, I was thinking, too, that the second graphic novel that you mentioned is actually forthcoming, so it's not out in the world yet. Okay. Um, but it's interesting because the my, I guess, my writing practice is very different if it's writing text or writing comics. And with comics, I really sort of have to sit down and um, sometimes I'm watching television. A lot of times it's at the end of the day when I do that versus um, working on fiction or I also write our criticism. And that kind of has to happen when the sun is up. If I try and write um, <laughs> at night, at the end of the day, I just I fall asleep and I'm useless. <laughs> and then the next day I don't like um, anything that I've done. <laughs> ah, but you write so at home. But you again. you write at home. Yeah, I do actually. I write at home. I have two very small children, so I should also say that um, even just in the last couple of years, my writing practice, um, writing fiction, has also changed dramatically. And I feel like it sort of shifts around depending on where I can um, find time to be unavailable <laughs> uh, between you know working from home and taking care of the little ones. And as they get bigger, their nap routines change. Um, so I feel like I have to be really flexible and I've gotten much better at trying to focus as much as possible. Like, you know, if I have an hour, um, and then I would say, I think a lot of that is possible because I spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm writing when I'm not writing. And oddly, that's very, um, you know, taking care of kids is a ni- it's a nice kind of mental pastime <laughs> because they can still be with them, you know, yeah. present with them. So what you're telling us is your children determine when you write. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, that's well, true. talk to us a little bit about your work as a cartoonist. I think folks would be interested in that. How did you get oh, into that? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I've always drawn and, um, but I think I didn't really take it seriously for a long time. And I basically, I think the I lived in Chicago for about 17 years, and I lived around the corner from this amazing zine and um, comics bookshop called Quimby's. Mm-hmm. And I started when I moved to Chicago. There was a really big culture of I feel like independent art, um, community DIY making, comics making, zine making. And so I started making zines. And one of the things I started doing in these zines is writing these little comics. And so my first graphic novel, The Chronicles of Fortune, was basically ended up being a compilation of all of these mini zines that I had made. And you know, it's like I would make the drawings, I would take them to Kinko's, lay them out by hand, Xerox them and staple them, and then walk walk over to Quimby's and 
you know, sell them each for like $2 a piece. Yeah. I mean, it was very lo-fi, but it was also really satisfying. Um, mm-hmm. And then I realized it was a thing. It was like the sort of thing. I started doing that and then kind of met other people who make made comics and met my publisher eventually. And he sort of he was like, do you want to turn these into a graphic novel? He's uh, Neil Bordeaux now in Miami for um, Radiator Comics is his mm-hmm. distributor and publisher. Well, how does how did your work as a cartoonist, which is you know, mostly a visible uh, medium, uh, help with your work as an author for a book like <laughs> The Healing Circle? Or does it? I, I think, yeah, it's interesting because they're such, for me anyway, they're very different. They feel like very different mediums. And sometimes I've worked on longer fiction and, you know, they say like, had a friend read it and they said, you know, I really think you should turn this into a graphic novel. But say the writing the you know the text is like maybe even 2500 words which isn't terribly long but i feel like if i was going to make that into a comic it would maybe be 500 like there's a way where the text in comics is really reduced because you need this or at least for me you need a real balance between image and text and the image is almost saying more than the text is kind of Mm -hmm. the way a movie is too a movie works um and so then when i'm writing fiction or prose i feel like there's a really nice way where you can kind of spread out in language and really rely on language to do the heavy lifting what do you when you're writing the language are you for lack of a better way to describe it are you writing in pictures are you thinking in pictures Uh, as you write that's a good question um i have a friend recently who read who read the healing circle and was noticing how visual it was which i hadn't really thought about honestly Uh i mean so i think maybe my intuitive inclination is towards the visual um but Uh, i feel like i don't know maybe from the position of making like whether i'm making comics or writing fiction i think in either case when I love it best and when it feels like it's working really well, there's a way where I kind of disappear into concentration. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a very different type of disappearance. So almost like when I'm drawing, for instance, I'm very aware of, I'm like looking at an image and there's a real connection between my eye, my hand, the pen, and the page. And I feel like when I'm writing, there's some way where I'm like disappearing in a kind of imaginary space that is what's being written about, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think it does. Actually, I thought the novel in various spots, at least for me, was very visual. I could visualize what's going on. So it, it seemed like there was some cross-pollination there. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, let me ask you this. So let's talk about The Healing Circle then, the book. Did you, and I always ask this question of writers, did you start with an outline or just an idea and you started writing? How did you commence work on it? I'm so impressed with authors that use outlines, and I feel like I could cut years of of work out if I did that. Um, (laughs) But I, yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it was sort of a blind process, especially in the beginning. Like, I started this in 2010, but the version that was was like coming together then was I don't think you would recognize it except maybe the first page of the current novel is the only thing that's like 
been maintained and some of the themes, I mean, definitely some of the themes, but I think that, um, probably it wasn't until 2019 that I had this complete, I would say like a complete draft that I also feel like I had probably revised maybe eight times over the years. And then at that point, and especially because the, the healing circle is written in these, um, short snippets um, or, you know, segments and um, everything is told in the present Mm -hmm. and there's a way where different timelines overlap. And so I found that at that point when I was doing this sort of final major revision before publication, I had to make a map of all the timelines, how they were working together, what the pattern was, and also like map out the biographies of different characters mm-hmm. um, in relation to historic events. So that part was really interesting because it was the kind of thing where all of a sudden I discovered there were inconsistencies and errors and repetitions um, and also new kinds of like um, overlaps that were really exciting to discover. Yeah, I think, you know, from again, from interviewing other authors, that's a not uncommon part of the <laughs> editing process. As you get along, you find... Uh, those kind of things. Well, let me ask you about this. We're going to get into the novel a little bit more, but there are a lot of ideas in the novel. Where do these come from? Are any of them autobiographical? Yeah, I think the um, the original frame, I would say, the frame of the book, um, my, my own mother died in 2004, and she died from um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that she'd been wrestling with since I was about nine. And she ended like she got this, you know, a terminal diagnosis and she went to Munich to try and find this supposedly miracle cure. I, I think one of the reasons it took me so long to write is because I had to spend a lot of time dismantling what quote unquote really happened Mm -hmm. to what, to the, to the space of the book, like this kind of, um, I don't want to say real fiction, but maybe like, for me, I feel like the novel privileges ideas over any kind of autobiographical uh, sympathy, maybe. And so at, at a certain point, all of the characters and the conditions became themselves and don't resemble my life, even if this original framework exists. Did you find, though, that um, having gone through that process with your mother, that writing the book uh, was cathartic? I think initially, but I also think that, and again, I think everybody writes in different ways. But for me, yeah. I think when I was writing for the catharsis, the writing wasn't ultimately satisfying. I mean, so I would reread it again and I would say it was bad, but I think maybe what 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 counts as bad and what counts as good is like, less helpful than thinking about how to me than thinking about how what was happening and I think if I looked for the catharsis then it always fell short of capturing my experience and I think um, so there was some way where my ego was really invested in that type of writing and I think hindered the the result and so once I could kind of get beyond that and actually I feel like Part of how I got beyond that is that with enough time, I started really wondering, like, why would a person 
at the end of their life, um, leave everything behind to essentially to die alone. And mm-hmm. I don't know in the case of my own mother or, or the, the mother character in the book, I don't really know if either of them think about the, their decision that starkly, mm-hmm. but, um, I feel like that's sort of what motivated me in the end to like yeah. keep that's going. Inter- that's interesting. But of course, you know, there are cultures, some of them older cultures, where, um, you know, you do go die alone. You do leave and go <laughs> die alone, right? Yeah, totally. Right. Well, and I also think, yeah, there's interesting, there's interesting questions about agency. Like I think yeah. the kids in the book um, feel betrayed, understandably. And then I also think hopefully there's a way where it's, troubled by well what if that's what she chose and yeah what what does that mean you know well can i get you to read an excerpt uh from the book uh one of the chapters perhaps um so that (laughs) folks can get a sense of the of the writing style yeah i would love to um so the book also contains uh, a number of instances where the mother character is flashing back on different um attempts to find um healing or alternative forms of healing for her condition. And she is part of this group called the Healing Circle, a group of women. Um, So I'm just going to read one of these instances. Okay. Um, It's kind of from earlier on in the book. The handlers tell everyone not to touch the Holy One. It's like strippers, Lena jokes. You can be touched, but not touch. Mother and the rest of the Healing Circle stand in line with a few hundred others in a long, since closed, Roth dress for less. Everyone shuffles forward to see the guru, and there she is, a stout woman sitting cross-legged on several silk-tasseled pillows like a voluptuous chicken. The Holy One pulls Mother's head to her breast automatically, and already Mother is crying like a lamb with hiccups, pressing into her holiness's chest. Ma, 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 the guru says mechanically. Ma, 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 bleeding with a fuller voice. Everything is warm, a little too much. Mother stares at the fleshy linoleum tile and notices the faded silhouettes of former shopping aisles. She used to come here to find shoes. Ma, ma, ma. Surrounding members of the crowd shift and sway. Mother feels the pressure of the Holy One's arms, the pliancy of her skin. The guru smells like sweat, sugar, a hint of tiger bomb and incense. Mother sobs. How can I live? How can I survive? What am I surviving? My mother never loved me, Mother says. She is just about to let go of everything, all the tension, sorrow, resentment, to find redemption or solace or whatever, to have one of those moments where she might experience her unburdened, light-soaked, profound, true self and be healed when a handler abruptly picks up Mother by the shoulders and moves her to the side, setting her against Nancy's back where Mother slumps into weeping. It is Lena's turn to be touched. Mother turns to see. Ma, ma, ma. Andrea is behind Lena, glowing with expectation. Mother turns. Devotees whisper beside her. The Holy One was beaten as a child, did you know? It's on her website. Nobody understood her gifts. Women always pay the price, someone else agrees. Mother might go back to the beginning of the line and do it all over again. Yes, I mean, it's a wonderful excerpt from the book. Um, all right, we touched. You just touched on this a little bit, though. But I want to ask about it. In the book, there are chapters where the mother, who is in a, a wing of a hospital, we think, is having flashbacks to her own life, uh, to a marriage, a failed marriage, to her childhood. 
did you set out to write the story that way, juxtaposing the flashbacks with the hospital setting, or is that something that also evolved over time? I feel like that's something that evolved, um, but it's sort of like the moment that it arrived. You know, I think I was struggling with how to um, weave all of these mm-hmm. moments in, and so when it arrived, it kind of clicked into place, and part of why it clicked so well, I think, is because I was interested in the, it's like my experience of hospital rooms anyways, that they're very static and they just feel like it's like everything is going on forever and time really changes. It's somehow very slow, but then like, you know, it feels like um, days have gone by and all of a sudden you're a month later, you know what I mean? Yeah. So if there's like the slow, fast situation and, and then I was really interested in how how time or memory, I guess, can happen simultaneously in these moments of stasis. So, like, even though the mother character, she sort of, I feel like she's in this wing of the hospital. She doesn't, she sort of wonders if maybe she's dead. She's not sure um, because they think there's this kind of eternal limbo feeling. But then it's like her whole life is kind of stacking up and present in her mind and and that became a that felt like a real way to tell the story, I guess. Yeah, well, I, you know, I thought the flashbacks worked really well, and it brought a whole nother dimension to the character. But you mentioned memory, and so I want to ask you about that. What are you trying to tell us about memory in the book? I mean, how we use memory. You know, folks <laughs> have said for years, at least I recall reading. Uh, I don't think I'm imagining this, that without memory, you know, we we really don't exist. So what are you what are you trying to convey there with memory? I love I mean I love that idea. I probably I love that idea actually because I was um, talking to my brother and husband yesterday and we'd all been to the same wedding but we remembered different things and there was like this dinner that we went to that I don't remember at all. You know, and I sort of wondering <laughs> where where that where that exists mm-hmm. actually. Um but yeah, I mean, I do think that one of one of the things that I've noticed is as I've gotten older, and maybe this is especially having kids, I'm more aware of it um, because I realize that I have different memories that they they don't have access to, and I think that makes me conscious of how certain experiences or smells or like a quality of light, it will trigger a memory in me that's very, very specific. And then I feel like that memory will inflect my experience of the present. And so in other words, it's like, um, you know, I feel like those are the moments where I feel um, it's like the present is especially full or it's very, very full, but it's also full in this way that doesn't translate to other people that I'm with. and so I think that's one of the things that I was trying to to explore in writing the book. Okay. Well, look, can I get you to read one more excerpt for us? Oh, yeah. And if to. you need to set it up with anything, uh, feel free to do that. Oh, yeah. Here, I have one, actually. Okay. This is, again, sort of another um, episode. But why does... Why do I get sick? Mother asks the room. She sits beside Lena and Nancy in the Marriott banquet hall of some suburb she'd been approximate to for years, but never heard of. 
Lena holds mother's hand. There are so many gurus out there, Lena whispers. If this one doesn't work, we'll find another. She finds these people through various self-help newsletters and blogs that have transformed her Google algorithms. I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma several years ago. I'm in my sixth remission, mother says. Others in the room applaud like it's an AA meeting. And I'm trying to learn more about why this happens in order to prevent it from happening again. Mother worries she isn't making much sense. Does that make sense? She says, I want to survive. What can I do to live a better life? A guru is at the front of the room on a makeshift stage. This one is male and allegedly a prince from some very cold country in the Far East. He sits cross-legged, watching everyone and everything, eyes half-lidded. When he moves, he does so slowly, as though to demonstrate that he inhabits an alternate plane of reality. Rumor has it he is a difficult person. Lena says the hotel staff had trouble constructing a stage according to his specifications because their lowest risers were 12 inches, and he requires a stage no more than 7 inches in height for fear of reinscribing hierarchical patterns in his lifetime. The workshop was nearly canceled until the hotel carpenter cut five inches off each riser. These are the mysteries of the universe, the guru says. Why do we suffer? I know monks who feed stray dogs around the temple because they believe the dogs were bad monks in a past life. When you see a worm, what do you see? I see a being who fell from the karmic ladder. I do not know what the worm did, but I practice compassion. Everyone has weaknesses. Our weaknesses, our failures, and circumstances, our teachings. But those same weaknesses, failures, circumstances further present opportunities. What shall we do within the constraints of our private theater of suffering? Suffering, even when it appears mindless, cruel, these fortunes enwrapped us, absorb us, fulfill an idea of ourselves, creating bundles of attachment. People applaud. Does that mean it's my fault? Mother whispers. Well, that's another good one. Um, uh, <laughs> So I, I was struck by something, and I wanted to ask you this. In the, in the book, Mother has several names, right? If I'm read correctly, Sula, yeah, or yeah. Ursula. But mostly, she's just referred to as Mother. Um, tell me why, why you did it that way, and you know that she stays Mother throughout. It seemed to be a characterization you wanted to make sure got across, but I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, also, because... And she, she sort of comments on the different names that she has. So yeah. one of the things she she says, for instance, early on in the book, um, she has this nurse, Heike, and um, Heike always calls her by her given name, which is Ursula. And, so, and then the, so the mother character sort of reflects on how hearing her name, remind, her, hearing her full name reminds her of her past. Um, but then there's a way where once she um, immigrated to America, people started calling her Sula, which is like this, you know, shortened version. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in some ways I was interested in, like, calling attention to her role yeah. and the way she's identified through this very gendered, caregiving capacity. Um, there's also a way where she's, I would say she's not, like, she doesn't really fit the mold as far as what a quote-unquote good mother would be in her relationships with her children. Um, and then there's also a way where all of her children are grown up. So 
so it's sort of like she shouldn't necessarily be considered a mother anymore mm-hmm. and yet you know um i think i i was interested in the idea of how that term or how that name kind of in some ways i think it um it implies a lot it creates yeah. this um uh, uh, like level of expectation for who she is supposed to be and how she is supposed to do it. And then I also think the juxtaposition of like the mother who is also ill, who needs caretaking and um, how that impacts her children is also just interesting. So it's like all of this, there's like this field of questions that happens for me when yeah. she's identified this way that was felt important. Yeah. Well, okay. So I have to ask you about the algo plant in the hospital room. <laughs> so Yay. for folks who, because um, we're going to be running out of time here in a little bit, but for folks who read, uh, who pick up the book, there is an algo plant in the hospital room named Madame Blavatsky. I'm probably mispronouncing that. No, First right. question, though, are you borrowing that name from the Russian author, Helena yes. Blavatsky? Ah, yeah. who was, I think, something of a spiritualist, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's an article that I read um, recently that called her uh, the the you know the founder of the New Age movement, which I'm sure is arguable, but mm-hmm. that's sort of um, okay. part so, of her presence. So you put that in there for folks. Uh, you know, authors will do that sometimes. They'll use a, a reference that not everybody will pick up. All right. So what does the algal plant symbolize? Because it ends up providing, at least uh, towards the end, great comfort. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this was like the owl plant is like another character that became increasingly important to me. And I think, um, also somehow relates to the way time works in the, in the novel. Yeah. Um, like I sort of almost, it's like, I kind of want to imagine that the way the mother's experience is, um, layered and happening is almost more plant-like um, because it's sort of like she's not existing. On, she's existing more on a um, vertical plane than a horizontal plane, which hmm. is one of the ways that I think about how plants move. You know, they move up and down instead of laterally. Um, and mother is um, paralyzed. She's in a hospital room. She's not really capable of moving. And so I feel like as the book goes on, she becomes more and more um, in tune with this plant who has been there all along but has kind of been in the background, which is also, I feel like, the way plants usually function. Yeah. So, yeah, I was kind of interested in the plant stepping forward into her field of reference. That's a really interesting touch. Well, let me end with this question. Um, So some authors will say that they simply write for themselves, and others will tell me that they, you know, wrote to make a social or a political point. and some just do it for the money. What motivates uh, What motivates you to write? Uh, I think I feel like it starts with a feeling, and then usually, as I'm unpacking that feeling through writing, then I start to touch on different ideas and influences. Um, so, for instance, I think in this book, one of the things that I was thinking about is also um, this really alarming. Um, return, I would say, towards, or political return towards, like, more and more authoritarian behavior. 
mm-hmm. in different world countries. And so that's one of the narratives that kind of hopefully is captured in the book. Um, Ursula, her parents, her, her father was a, worked in the Nazi party as a clerk. They immigrated to Argentina. And then um, uh, the mother character and her mother and brother immigrate to America. And then, you know, it's sort of like they get farther and farther away from that original point of history or that original trauma, um, but continue to bring it with them in different ways. And so I feel like the mother's son, for instance, kind of falls into some of the more, um, he falls into a school of thought called accelerationism, which I Uh also feel like borrows a lot of some fascistic tendencies. For instance, let's wait for the world to fall apart and then we can start again. Okay. Well, I'm afraid that that's all the time we have for today. Uh, You've been listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and I've been speaking with author Coco Picard about her new book, The Healing Circle. Coco, is there a website where folks can go to to learn more about you and your other writings as well as this book? Yeah, of course. You can just go to www.cocopicard.com. Oh, sounds good. Well, Coco, (laughs) and and simple, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. It's such a pleasure. 